When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I divide my life into two phases, uh, BJ and AJ, before Jamie and after Jamie. Um, I suppose it's a very different person before Jamie. I was um, um, a young mother, two children, looking forward to the third one. Um, he arrived and he was healthy and uh, a bit colicky, um, but you know we were watching him progress and and everything was forward. You know everything was going forward, and then at four months it all suddenly changed. You know he just had an episode where he screamed and screamed all the time and pushed at his head and he couldn't. He was a breastfed baby and he lost the ability even to. To hold the breast, even to, and um, couldn't hold up his head anymore, um, and just lost everything he had gained to that point. And I think that that at that time, of course, I didn't know that this was the rest. <laughs> this was from now on. Uh, it just seemed that it it was a phase, and it was about three months later. Um, Jamie was screaming all the time that my, my parents returned. They had been away for the three months. Um, in fact, it was as they were leaving that this episode started uh, because it was at that point my father had given Jamie the vaccination. Um, he, my father came back, so I was delighted. And at the end of the week, I, was, I just remember him sitting with Jamie at the kitchen table, and I walked in and he said, you know there's something wrong with Jamie. And I just said, uh, it suddenly, it was very funny because I didn't know there was something wrong. But, but under that layer, that top layer that was excusing everything, I knew that, Jamie, there was something wrong. So I just, it was as if like you had just pulled off the lid of something. And I said, oh, yeah, I know, I know. And he said, I think he's blind or deaf. And I said, that's right, he is. <laughs> and things happened very quickly after that. Um, I think he was in the pediatric unit in St. Finbar's within a week to have a workup, uh, to have tests. And he had a, you know, a doctor physically examined him and handled him. He went out of the room once or twice for blood tests, and I think he had an x-ray. Barring that, he laid in a bed, and every day a team of doctors walked past his bed and uh, just looked at him, didn't touch him. And the rest of the day, I just sat by the bed. I mean, he was completely breastfed. He wouldn't take anything else. Um, and at night, they wouldn't let me stay with him. So, in fact, he was very calm in hospital because it was very quiet for a start. We were in a room. It was a closed room, kind of a gable room. And there were six babies there. And basically, 
I was there by myself most of the day with six babies. And it was very quiet. I just read. And, and also Jamie was very quiet because he cried all night because I wasn't there to feed him. So he used to scream all night and he'd be exhausted. <laughs> when we were leaving the hospital, my, my dad had come to pick us up. And we went down to see the professor of pediatrics. And he said that Jamie wasn't meeting his milestones. He seemed very severely delayed. And that because he had not only stopped progressing, but he had lost a lot of the progress he had he had made since birth. And he said, and my father said, well, can we be more specific? And he just said, I wouldn't rule out autism. So my dad said, well, so what do we do? And he just looked at him and he said, well, you take him home and watch it develop. So we walked out of the room and I just looked at my dad and he said, I don't know a lot about autism, but I do know that the one thing you don't do is watch it develop, is, sit, is, you know, wait and watch it develop. So we came home and we rang around the services and, um, you know, we spent the summer looking for help. And of course, whatever about summer and holiday time in, in the year 2002, summer and holiday time in 1978 was like, you know, nobody was home, you know. So, um, but also there was no uptake even for the autumn. There's nobody saying ring back in the autumn. There was no even return visits scheduled for um, St. Finbar's. So anyway, we, we went on and by the end of the summer, my parents were returning to the States. They had come back for the summer. I mean, my father just said, look, how do we leave Jamie here? We can't do that. He's, they could see that he was regressing all the time. So we went back with them to Chicago. And um, we went to the hospital where he originally trained, Loyola. And the attitude was, we can't lose a minute. Get him in here. And when he went in, there was, a, again, another workup. In, in a, but it was more a occupational therapy, a physiotherapy. They brought in a teacher for the blind, the deaf blind. They brought in, you know, developmental um, psychologist, um, educational psychologist. They, they brought in a whole team and they started to work with him. And he responded amazingly. I mean, when we first went, all he did was scream. I mean, he wouldn't let anyone touch him. He just screamed and screamed. But two and a half months later, and it wasn't even intensive. I mean, we weren't residents, so they took us on for research in order to take Jamie on. And so he had, oh, maybe two to three sessions a week of approximately an hour. And then there were a number of other sessions. You know, he had EEGs and, and things like this. Um, but as far as the actual working with him, it was two or three hours a week, which, I mean, if he had been resident, it could have been 20 hours, even at 11 months old. Um, and so even, but even with that level, and they would teach me to carry things on at home, he went from being completely unworkable, totally enclosed in himself, autistic, uh, to not looking like an autistic child at all, and as was a child that you could work with and was actually making progress. So after two and a half months, they said, okay, it, it's safe to go home. Now, they had gotten in touch with uh, people here in the service providers in Cork, and they seemed to indicate, yes, you know, there would be services here that things would carry on. And we went to a home, and of course, that didn't happen. There, there weren't services. Eventually, we did get into a kind of a, we got into a, a nursery, a sort of a babysitting service. Very nice people minding them, minding him, but but not 
any anything that he needed. Um, I saw the the director of it every summer. Uh, she saw Jamie, and by the time he was sort of he was two and a half, she was sort of saying, "Come back to the states. We've got to." You know, he's lost so much time, um, but we could still recover a lot. So. It took me, I asked the health boards to send us over, and it took really from July until December. We, and I mean, it was interesting because all the health board had to do was pay for the tickets. You know, the, the intervention was going to be free. I was going to stay with my parents. All I asked the health board for was my tickets. And in the end, it was so funny because they agreed to pay for my ticket and Jamie's ticket, but they wouldn't pay for my other two children. So... Um, no, I had nothing. I had actually no income at the time because I wasn't I wasn't allowed to have social welfare for a technicality, and um, so I I was incomeless. And I think my parents would have paid for it. I mean, they would have paid for the, my tickets, but I I kind of didn't realize it was going to take so long, and I didn't ask them. I thought, well, look, they're going to be keeping us, and I didn't ask them for that, and. Um, if I had known how long it was, I would have. But we, we arrived over eventually. Oh, yeah, it was very funny, too, because when we were over there, they wanted me to keep them updated on Jamie's progress because they wanted to be sure that the investment in two airline tickets was worth their while. You know, so, <laughs> you know, I mean, they were getting all this free service in the States as well. And um, by five months, he had begun to speak. He was learning, he was trying to walk, he was, you know, up on his feet and loving it. He was really positioned, he was learning and positioned to learn. They had been in touch with the services here, they had sent over programs. In fact, they even the director was actually going to meet with the service providers during the summer. So that the whole thing was set up for them. And the Americans were quite satisfied that things could be carried on now that he was set up. And I came back, and the first thing that hit me was, uh, it was April, and they said, ah, well, summer's nearly here, so there's no point in working with him now. So I worked with him really hard all summer. And then at the end of the summer, he was taken into the service, and it was two hours twice a week. And, you know, and, and, and I was, there was this attitude of, well, you've made a lot of trouble, you and your Americans have made a lot of trouble. You know, you know you wouldn't be in the service if it weren't for them, sort of thing. And I had to meet with the doctor that ran the service. And he was very, very witty guy, really witty. Um, and he used to, but, but not, in, not always in the, <laughs> the best way. <laughs> Every meeting I had with him was really to get me to accept the fact that he, Jamie was going to go nowhere. He was going to ruin my life. And one of the things he had recommended, even before we went to States a second time, was what he called a parentectomy, which was where he would take Jamie into their service for six weeks, I think it was. Some of them they did three months. And not Jamie wasn't to see me for that time. And they would observe Jamie. Literally, Jamie would be lying in a bed for six, six weeks or whatever. So anyway, by the time we had come back and we were going to the service, the, the, the year began to slip by. And the year was nearly over. And he was getting more frantic about the fact that, that I should put Jamie behind me, that Jamie should go into services. 
And I was more determined that the actual service had a class for autistic children. And I was determined Jamie would get in there. Now, if I knew the services better, I would know that the chances of him getting in there were total, were nil. Uh, but I didn't know, and I was determined that he was going to go there. And this this uh, director this was determined that Jamie be removed from my home. So he, he had arranged for bed and all for Jamie. No matter how many times I told him Jamie was not going in residential, there was a place for being held for Jamie. And he he kept saying, he's going to ruin your life. You know, you're young and attractive and, you know, you should uh, put him behind you. You have other children. You know, you should get rid of him. through September of the year Jamie was, he was going to be five in October, Jamie was being assessed and the big process was going on. Um, I don't think it was actually that big a process, but, <laughs> but uh, it, it just meant that instead of babysitting, he was sometimes in a different room. And they, um, oh yeah, then his birthday came and I remember because we really celebrated it, but I kind of had a lot of fear at that time because five was this big number and for decision-making. And I brought him in the next day and brought him into his, the, you know, this babysitting place, mother and child clinic or family and child clinic. And they were very nice and everybody was very nice and everything was very usual. And I was just walking out after the two-hour session. I picked up Jamie and was walking out and the receptionist, you know, nice girl, kind of said, oh, Mrs. Sinnott. And I said, what? And she, um, you're not to bring Jamie anymore. And I said, what? No, Jamie doesn't come here anymore. And I said, why? And she said, because he's turned five. And I said, well, I, you know, I mean, I was just so dumbfounded. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do? And she said, I don't know. Nobody said so I said, well, well, like, where do we go? And she said, you just don't come here anymore. And that was it, you know. So in the end, I said, well, what will I do? And I, I was kind of thinking out loud, and I said, well, maybe I, well, I have to go to, and I named the other service. And they said, um, she said, oh, yeah, that'll be a good idea. You go there. You know, and that was it. And I, I felt so, even then, I was, I actually felt really sorry for the girl because I knew you know, she probably had hated, she probably couldn't bring herself to do it when I was on my way in, you know, and hated to do it and, and kind of just wanted me to go away so she wouldn't have to feel so bad. <laughs> and it was so wrong and so cowardly. So uh, we went away and, and he was, no, he, he got, you know, he had some babysitting with the other service and that carried on. He had two days a week there two hours again. And at least there it was, it was much more honest. You know, 
they would say, well, this is so you can do your shopping. And it used to be such a joke because I didn't have any money to do shopping. <laughs> so what I used to do is um, I would go and I would mostly, uh, if it was cold, I would usually say go to Mass. And then I would sit in the church and read. And it was very funny because in the Franciscan church in Cork, they have these air jets, these hot air jets all around the side of the church. And they're under benches. So there'd be myself and loads of elderly people and say, you know, one or two maybe, you know, alcoholics who maybe had nowhere to go during the day who were, you know, pretty sick. And we would all be sitting over the air jets, you know, and it'd be so funny because half ten mass would end and suddenly there'd be this race or this hobble to the air jets. <laughs> and I used to feel really guilty because I didn't feel like I should take an air jet if... Um, if one of the elderly people were using an air jet. But uh, I was so thin in those days, and um, I suppose, you know, a bit underfed and, and stressed, that I really needed an air jet. <laughs> so it used to, I never used to know whether or not I was going to get to sit over one of these things or not. And these things used to be really huge in my life. You know? So then um, finally 12 o'clock would come, and I would say the Angelus then, that they would leave just before Mass, and I'd go and run and collect Jamie again from 12, and I would then put him in his push chair and push him up the hill to um, Holly Hill, or first to Blarney Street, where I was living, over a shop, and then later on to Holly Hill. And um, it was great. There were a lot of really good things about it, and it was great for, for thinking. You know, it was... And I, I had I came up with a very, you know, a lot of people would ask me, um, like, did you ever grieve? You know, this grieving process. And, you know, I'm so often involved in helping parents with that process, you know, or um, helping, you know, sort of um, listening to parents talking about it. And in a way, I don't know. I, I don't remember it. You know, I just remember that, we just had to do something, and but I think those that those couple of years sitting in St. Francis on on the cold days and um, you know and the no money days were very good for that. I think it it just happened in a much quieter way, you know, that I, I got to kind of sort that stuff out. So we started to fight for daycare, and it took us about oh I'd say. Um, 83 to 85, we eventually got a five-day service in 85. And it was so funny because the health board, I used to go to the health board, and one of the things they would, one, one of the comments that they made that was very telling, I was talking to the guy that I was in touch with in there, and he just got impatient with me one day, and he said, listen, there's no point in educating these kids. They just die anyways. You know, I mean, this perception of the sphere and profound that, you know, it's all wasted. Anything you do for them was wasted. All the next years are kind of a bit of a blur. But, it, you know, Discovery Papers showed me so many things, you know, about how we just were not important. I mean, Jamie was not that important to a lot of people. And he wound up in a class that was friendly and everything, but not appropriate. Uh, when he was 19... Then he was told that he was to graduate, and I just refused. I said, absolutely not. He's only in junior infants. He's not graduating, and refused to allow him to graduate. So the next September, I brought him back to the classroom, and he basically squatted until about April. I just brought, you know, brought him into the classroom, 
Then I put him on his bus every day and he went to the classroom. But they kept trying to get me to move him up. There was another center that Minister Martin opened, a pilot project. It was the only over 18, severe and profound, so-called education center. And it was, it was put on. I mean, I even said it in the papers that it was put on for Jamie Sinnott and a couple of others. And so it was to keep Jamie out of court. And there were one or two others that were getting legal representation. So um, I refused to put him up there because it wasn't appropriate. What he was in wasn't appropriate, but I thought he, he likes the kids there. He has friends. And you see, if, if you leave your friends, you can ring him up. If he leaves his friends, he never sees them again. If he, if he even was moved into the next room, he might never see those people again. And he can't ring them up or write to them or meet them for a coffee. So I thought, well, I'm not moving him to another... Uh, and I, I said it to Michal Martin. We had a meeting. He said, why won't you move Jamie? And I said, because it's not appropriate, and I'm not changing him to another inappropriate thing. And I told him about the friends, and, and I said, I'm just not doing it. So um, in about April, they just started to move Jamie. He would arrive to where he was squatting, and they would put him in a car and move, or tell, tell the van to take him up the hill. Now, I had written to them saying he could not go there. So when I discovered that, I discovered it because he got very depressed and I wanted to, I found, I was asking why was he so depressed. And um, so I I found out he wasn't going to the place that he knew. And I got the solicitor to write. I told them, don't move him. I'm putting him here. You have, you may not touch him to move him up there. And they just kept doing it. it. I mean, to me, that was kidnapping. So, um... Anyway, eventually, after about a week or two, I just took him out, and he was home for about six months. And again, he was doing as well at home as there. But what happened then, eventually, he was people were going out the door in the morning, and he was just lonely again. So I eventually sent him up to the center that I had been avoiding. And he stayed there, you know, again, no progress made, but just he was there until the court case. And that's where he was when the case happened. And I think what the case showed is that, number one, this educational center had no teacher. There was no one with the teaching qualification there. And certainly not an autism-specific training or even special needs training. So anyway, we, we wound up in court. And, of course, things became very uh, hot. I remember going up to his center and um, being told, I'm sorry, Mrs. Sinnott, you can't come in here. We will bring Jamie out to you. <laughs> And that was it. Every other parent could go in, but I had to stand at the door and Jamie would be brought out. But anyway, the, the case came and it was coming for so long. I think I, I first started, I first went to the solicitor, Ernest Cantlin, in 90, um, well, O'Donoghue was 93. So on behalf of Jamie, I think I first went in 93. And the case didn't, wasn't heard until 99. And um, so by the time we went in, we knew that if Jamie had had those services from 11 months, if they'd been carried on, and they weren't state-of-the-art, they weren't something that couldn't have been done here, um, if the will were there, we would have been looking at somebody that was probably would have had a mild learning difficulty, maybe even low normal. Very cl- He would have been clumsy. Um, if the work at three years had been carried on, we would have been looking at somebody certainly in the high-moderate, low-mild you know, instead of someone very profoundly handicapped. Um, And so there was real damage. The court cases really changed Jamie's life for the moment. 
because he got the funding for two and a half years of um, teaching and ancillary services, which means uh, exactly what he listed out, medical treatment, health care, and therapy. talking about Jamie so long it's time to meet him and, and his teacher Caroline McGuinness the program that we use at home with Jamie, his home program is based on ABA, Applied Behavioural Analysis and um, Jamie works alongside other teachers and myself and uh, it's a one to one, first of all it's a one to one so Jamie works with one teacher um, and this is six hours a day um, and it's fairly intensive and at the moment, and very luckily, he happens to have, um, you know, six to seven days a week of six hours per day, um, ABA. And basically, it means that we would um, have a Pacific uh, programme for Jamie. It's very individual-based. It would be kind of like his individual education plan where, you know... Programs yeah. that we have designed and yeah. teachers have designed for Jamie, which would include his sister Bridget, uh, would also be involved in designing yeah. Jamie's programs, are to meet Jamie's needs at the present, at a particular time. So we would have, for example, the programs would be divided into main sections. For example, we would have a, a, a verbal behaviour section, and under that we might have ten various different programs. Mm-hmm. Another section would be self-sufficiency, for example, learning how to put on a coat and, and tie up the coat. Uh, physical would be a case where at one stage, Jamie, when I first came here, he had a fear of stairs. And he still does, particularly going upstairs, but that's not in our programme at the moment. But outside, um, which we work as well outside, it's not just in the room. We work outside in, in the environment of, around his home. And um, we have a, you know, we have a purposely built staircase, kind of, you know, designed to meet Jamie's needs, his height and, and everything else appropriate for Jamie. Make it as easy as possible at the beginning for Jamie to be able to conquer this, because the idea is, you know, we want to make every single program as doable as possible and for it to be a positive experience. Today with Jamie, um, first of all, what I need to do at, at every uh, programme that I do when I first start with Jamie is that I need to check all records of Jamie. So I'd need to check what was done uh, the day before with Jamie. So I would read what the report was from the teacher on, on the day before I began to find out how his progress was. Was he agitated? Did he have a good day? Um, did he conquer some new programs and has he gone on and advanced on a new program? Um, for example, there would be a new STO. Um, I would then have to read each new STO and I would then make sure I'd work with the new STO. So I would always do anything that was new, first of all. And any new STO um, that has changed, I would have to record. Basically... Everything that has to be done has to be recorded, so I would check to see what has been done the day before. So first of all, I would do any new STO that needs to be done. <laughs> Second of all, I would do any programme that hadn't been done the day before. So 
all programmes are being all the various programmes up to about you know he could have maybe up to 60 <laughs> programmes we have to try and make sure that as many as those get done um, on a daily basis so that he's not not forgetting how to I mean it's a learnt behaviour so we want to make sure that this is a continuous um, process that he is he's, he's learning to use all those skills on a daily basis um, so today I've decided even though Jamie and it depends how Jamie's mood is and how his form is every day now today Jamie might is seems to be in a very good mood but he also is showing signs of being agitated which means it could be quite difficult to work with Jamie and sometimes he loves he loves school regardless of him being you know, off mood or not, he actually, he really loves being in school and loves doing the programmes. So I'm going to actually do the eye con- This programme is called Eye Contact Two Objects. It's the first one I'm going to do. Now, it might be difficult to do this programme with Jamie at the moment because his eye contact, that's one of the things, can be very poor when he's, when he's a little agitated. But I would do the most difficult ones first if I feel he's a bit agitated because as the day goes on, you don't know whether he is going to get worse or better. So I try, you know, and do very simple things first and then something difficult in between. So I'm going to do eye contact to, ob- to objects. Now, um, we, it starts off with STO1, um, STO2 and all the way down. At the moment, he's at um, STO5, um, um, at STO25. And this says that he's got four soft toys, small soft toys um, and the object of this STO is for him to track so his eye movement should move with each object that has been placed in front of him so the first object um, I will place on the table and it will stay on the table for one second and I will give him a command you know, to look here and he has one second to look at this object and I will take it away immediately I will place the second object in front of him for one second he has to directly look at the object and it will stay on the table the third object will remain on the table the fourth one is going to make some because sometimes the more object he has the more difficult it is you know, he's going to have to look at one thing and the second and the third and then a fourth and that is great that we've gotten to that stage so we make the fourth thing something that um, has a bit of noise so this toy is going to have a a kind of a squeaky thing that's going to make him be more um, I suppose notice it more so we're going to give it a go so Jamie okay we're going to do our first program today it's eye contact objects so here we go Jamie look here Jamie look here look here look here good job now it may be very difficult for the person hearing this, but he did actually do that task quite good. He looked at the first and he looked at the second and third and fourth. One of the things that recently I, I found very significant um, from when I was first here back in June last year was, um, and with autism you'll find that not recognising somebody in the room or an awareness of others around you was very uh, noticeable when I first uh, started with Jamie. And last uh, week when I was working with Jamie, um, as I said, he likes to, you know, bolt to the door of the classroom and go straight to his favourite room in the kitchen. But... um, 
And we've also taught him to actually open doors mm. now, which if you ask his other siblings, <coughs> we're not too sure if that was a good thing or not, but <laughs> we think it's great. And I think Jamie thinks it's great as well. But he went to the door and he was opening the door. And um, we have a certain tone of voice as well as part of the ABA programme. And, you know, it would be something like, and I think I said to Jamie, Jamie. And immediately he stopped. He removed his hand from the handle of the door and he turned around. So to me, it was the first time that I, it was a significant where he, first of all, he recognized his name and he responded to recognizing his name and he could hear from my tone of voice that him opening the door and heading to whatever direction he was going to was not what he should have been doing. So he recognized what he was doing was wrong and he recognized his name, which is most important, you know, um, and I thought that was great. You're listening to RTE Radio 1. This is 5-7 Live with Rachel English. In our top stories, the Supreme Court finds against Catherine and Jamie Sinnott the constitutional right to a primary education does not continue past the age of 18. After the, the case, we went down to the consulting room for a few minutes, looked at the judgments as quickly as we can, and then came up. And the scene when I came out, I mean, there was a lot of press, but what, was, what there was were parents crying. They were looking at their, you know, they had actually stuck, I don't, stuck pictures on the, wall, on the walls of the courthouse. And, and they were crying and they were talking and some of them were holding each other. And, and they were just in complete shock. And it was all rumor because, you know, they were saying, I think we've lost. They weren't even totally sure, some of them. They were still kind of hoping. And, and I just come out, came out and I think I've been told no so often in my life. And I just came out and said, no, you know, they have a right. We're going to make sure that they get the education they need. It's a, and we are not going to let this stop us. We are going, and, I, and I made a personal promise that I was going to do whatever it took to ensure that um, people who needed fundamental primary education would get it. It's not just about Jamie, it's about so many others. I mean, one of the things that was really sad in the month or two after that were the phone calls from parents of 18 and 19-year-olds who had been contacted by their service provider or whatever and were told that because of the Senate judgment, they weren't to come back in September. And I had several of those where they had held them on just in case the Senate judgment. But now, no, I'm sorry, go. So, you know, I kept thinking about the way the state said that, yes, they would be educated, but not as a constitutional right. And then the next thing that these parents are contacted, they get letters saying, don't bring them back in September. And um, it's, as I say, it's never just been about Jamie for years and years. And I think that once I got Jamie's class up and running, and, and running smoothly, I mean, I'm involved in it every day. I set up, the, you know, we set up the trays, and, um, you know, there's kind of a certain level of involvement and interaction with the teachers. But it's really freed me up for the work I do in the Hope Project. And what I have is, um, I started the Hope Project in 96 because I just needed a, a quicker vehicle than some of the groups I were, very good group I was with, but 
uh, I needed something faster and something that could be a little bit more um, um, radical, maybe, or or outspoken or something. And um, slowly, you know, people joined me in the Hope Project. And we run a helpline out of my house. And it's busy all day. And it's it's... We deal with any dis- every disability. Often, in fact, disabled people would ring me. And I remember recently a, a man rang me, um, and he just said, he was so upset, and he said, I just want to talk to you because I've been treated like I don't exist. I've been treated like a non-person. And it was all in connection with putting a heating system in his house. And everybody had discounted him, and in the end they had put in a heating system, and the one room he sat in didn't have a heater that worked. And they were, he was told, well, you've had your grant, you've had your heating, tough. And he just said, they just treated me like I wasn't a person. And over the last two weeks, I've had two parents of two 14-year-olds that have been out of school for two years now. They were just put out of school. One has a visual um, processing, very severe visual processing problem. Another one has ADD and dyslexia. Both of them were disorganized. The, the more they were yelled at, the more challenging they became. I mean, their challenging behavior was, was nurtured by the lack of help for their problems, uh, very blatantly. And um, both of them been out of school. They've just been home, doing nothing for two years. It's like, um, it's like, oh, another one's broken, or this one, this one isn't. You know, we've more kids where they came from. We just, you know, we, we, I mean, at 14, you're out of the system. You're, you're canceled. You're exed. You're scrap heaped. And, and your family who are dealing with your anger at home. Um, uh, I mean, if I, if I started going through stories, I could be here all day. And one of them, she was so angry. She said she'd just been on to the department yet again, which she's been doing for two years. And they've begun hanging the phone up on her. Literally just hanging the phone. We're not speaking to you, hanging the phone up. They're not helping this boy. And they're driving his mother, quite frankly, into the river. And, um, but these situations are daily, and they're all over the country. Mentally handicapped adults locked up in lockups in prisons. Only they don't have 70,000 pounds a year spent on them because they're not prisoners. They're not, they're not criminals. They have nothing, virtually nothing spent on them. Um, and they're sick, and they're they don't have their own clothes. They don't have a, you know, they don't have something at Christmas. They don't have uh, any dignity at all. If if a family, the families aren't even encouraged to stay in touch. Um, and you know, eventually, the the heartbroken families lose touch with these people. Ever since I tried getting, you know, and this would go back to 83, when I started to group parents around me and started to, in a consistent way, um, get services for Jamie and for others, I felt that I was being considered an enemy, an enemy of the state. Um, over, the, over the last 24 years, I've learned that you, you cross the line when you have a, a disabled person or you become disabled. Um, before, before when you're a, a young parent with, with normally developing children, you're, you're seen as somehow part of the state and part of the state's future. Um, 
you're encouraged, things are laid on for you and, and you contribute to the state. Um, and and there's kind of a, a feeling that you're all on the one side. But the, the minute, for some reason, the minute you have a disabled child, you're seen as an enemy of the state. And you're seen as an nuisance. You're seen as someone who wants to drag the state down, who wants to cost the state money instead of um, being someone who needs support and, um, um, or, and, and instead of your child as being someone that the state has the privilege of, you know, that the state is set up to help take care of. And I think that the, you know, I, I've learned that this has always been the attitude of government in, in all those years. It didn't matter what party it was, who was in charge, um, who was in coalition. It didn't matter. It's always been this way uh, in my experience that, you know, the disabled and their family were seen as as outside of the real life and, and as... Um, as as almost a, an enemy from within, but the the ordin- or people on the street don't feel like that. I've always I've always had support. You know, whether it was someone opening a door into a shop for me, um, someone saying an encouraging word, um, or the the great outpouring of support around the Senate appeal and and around the Supreme Court. And I think it's time for people to maybe reclaim this country for people. And I think it's time for people to decide if they want children, disabled children, their families and adults, to be seen as enemies of the state. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.